All right, podcasters, a few more things before we get to the show. First off, Christmas is coming early for you. Oh, yes. We wanted to let you know we have four DPT episodes coming at you in the next three weeks. That's right. If you studied math, you will realize that is more than one episode per week. Right? We think so. We that's, didn't study math. According to our computers, but, that's the deal. Yes. First mm-hmm. off, uh, we have today's episode, which is our holiday special special. Get it? A special about holiday specials. Yum. This is a show we created last year. To honor holiday specials, it's truly one of our favorite shows ever. We love this episode, so enjoy that. And then this coming Tuesday, we're going to hit you with a new episode of our occasional series, Speakeasy. And that's got never-before-heard clips from our conversations with Anthony Bourdain, Rick Astley, and loads of others. We're not really going to hit you. We're going to put it in the podcast feed. We'll be nice uh, about it. And you might think that's plenty of excellence for one month, but wait, there's more. Oh, yes. Not Knives, but another show, an all-new one, starring actor Gael Garcia Bernal and Barry Jenkins. I'm so excited for this. He's the filmmaker behind the movie Moonlight, which is one of my favorites of the year. By the way, when we spoke to Barry, he correctly identified the band who wrote our theme song. He's a genius. So basically, he instantly wins the Oscar. The race is over. And then at the end of December, we will be serving up our brand new 2016 holiday show, my word. And uh, I guess we'll keep that guest lineup secret. Hint. Alton Brown and Zoe Deschanel. Real secret-like. So basically, we are sending a metric boatload of culture directly at your ears and brain. And if you appreciate that, if you've kept abreast of culture this year by listening to our show, we have a new way you can say thank you, people. It is our new text-to-give campaign. Yeah, how it works is pretty cool. You donate to us by texting the word ICEBREAKER to 677-677. It takes about five seconds, and then you'll get an icebreaker, a joke from us, as well as a link where you can donate to the show. The link part is not a joke, we should say. Neither is our appreciation. Thank you sincerely. And now, since we're on the subject, here's your icebreaker. I'd like to tell this one to kids who like Star Wars. How did Luke Skywalker know what Darth Vader got him for Christmas? He felt his presence. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM, American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your dinner party. You just got a joke from A.C. Newman, not Noonan, of rock band The New <laughs> Pornographers, and it was about gifting, because this show is our gift to you. Mm. It's our holiday special special. Yes, featuring seasonally appropriate conversations with the people behind some of our favorite holiday-themed entertainments. That's right, there's no echo in here. Later in the hour, we'll hear from Emmy-winning comic Bruce Valanche, one of the creators of the infamous Star Wars holiday special. Also, Beverly D'Angelo, star of the classic Christmas Vacation. Plus, Chef Jamie Oliver talks about the British holiday special that launched his career. Mm. And beloved grouch Fran Lebowitz answers your (laughs) etiquette questions. Sure does. But first, let's hear from a glasses-wearing gentleman from Queens. Yes, that would be Daryl McDaniels, a.k.a. DMC of rap legends Run DMC. He is a rock and roll Hall of Famer. He is a comic book author, and most germane for today's show, he co-wrote his band's holiday hit, Christmas in Hollis. We'll get to that in a minute, but when I met with McDaniels, we started by talking about his graphic novel called DMC2, and he told me how comics influenced his music. Before music, before hip-hop came over the bridge from the Bronx to change my life, I was just a little kid that went to Catholic school that loved comic books. The same way that I used to pretend I was Batman and Superman by, you know, putting my favorite blanket around my neck and jump through the house. And my mother would always be like, boy, if you don't stop jumping in my house. Well, (laughs) when hip hop came over the bridge, 
all the young people in, you know, New York City, we wanted to emulate the real-life superheroes that were the DJs and the MCs and the breakdancers and the graffiti artists. So I just started writing rhymes because I wanted to be like Grandmaster Flash and I wanted to have raps like Melly Mel. Yeah. So comic books gave me courage to get up on stage and perform. When I was on stage in front of y'all, Daryl McDaniels transformed into the microphone master King of Rock. <laughs> now, if you listen to King of Rock, okay. Run says, I'm DJ Run. I could scratch. I didn't say I'm DMC. I could rap. I said, I'm DMC. I could draw. I'm DJ Run. I could scratch. I'm DMC. I could draw. And now we got the knack to attract our rhymes and that was 1985, <laughs> and if you listen to my lyrics, if you listen yeah. to my lyrics, cra- on King of Rock, crash through walls, come through floors, bust through ceilings, and knock down doors. What do superheroes do? Now we crash through walls, come through floors, bust through ceilings, knock down doors. Now we're on the- Since this is our holiday show, I have to ask you about another superhero. Isn't, isn't Santa Claus kind of a superhero? Well, it all depends. Um, okay. Christmas and Hollis to me was mom's in the kitchen cooking, my dad putting the gifts under the Christmas tree, turning on Channel 11 in New York City, and they had the Yule log at nighttime. They would save up their money, their hardworking money, and they would take me to this toy store and let me pick out stuff. Oh. That's why when I wrote my rhyme for Christmas in Hollis, mm-hmm. I didn't rhyme about Santa Claus and reindeer and this and that. My Christmas wasn't that make-believe, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, Christmas yeah, yeah, that yeah. everybody, And that's why I rapped it. And I think that's why people relate to my rhyme so well because whether whatever holiday, whatever race, creed, color you are, people gravitate toward my verse because what do families and friends and people traditionally do on a special event? They get together and they break bread. You know what I'm saying? It's Christmas time in Hollis, Queens. Mom's cooking chicken and collard greens. Rice and stuffing macaroni and cheese. And Santa put gifts under Christmas trees. Decorate the house with lights at night. Snow's on the ground, snow white so bright. In the fireplace is the Yule log. So, whose idea was it to have a Christmas song anyway? Well, for the Special Olympics, they was doing this album, and it was Whitney Houston, Bruce Springsteen, and everybody. And Mm. when it was going through, you know, the list of people at that time, people started to acknowledge that, you know, this hip-hop thing is kind of legitimate. Yeah. And we should include the new music. And at the time, because Run DMC was bubbling... They was like, yeah, we should get Run DMC and them to do it. Now, that being said, at first we didn't want to do it because we we, we thought they was trying to over-commercialize our hip-hop. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. You didn't want we it to be want, cheesy. Right. Yeah. We didn't want Saran rapping. We didn't want Jingle yeah, Bell yeah, yeah. rap. That's corny. The thing that made us um, want to do it is at the time our publicist was Bill Adler. He said, y'all get to do something that's unique. And we was like, yeah, but that's, you know, they're trying to abuse our hip hop and make us do corny things we don't want to do. We go, we, we, <laughs> we want to stick to the yeah. beats and rhymes. And it was actually yeah. Bill Adler's idea to sample the Backdoor Santa uh, music. He used the beat as the bait. He came in, in the studio and put that on the turntable. And when that thing said, boom, yeah. when we heard that, <laughs> Run picked up a pin. I picked up a pin. It's okay. We can rock today. 
And so, how did people respond to this? You were concerned about maybe the integrity of your band, of, right, 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 of your right. group, now, and right. then how did it play out? Right. Well, that's that's a great question. We thought it was going to be one of those things. It would be a record that was hidden on this album that people would go back and listen to 25 years later and laugh at it. You know what I'm saying? It would kind of get lost in the shuffle, you thought. Right, and then it would be like, you know, 50 years later, yo, I was going through that very first special Christmas album, and I forgot running them did it to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We had no idea it would turn into this. People tell me, D, from now on, for the rest of the world's existence, it's going to be Ben Crosby, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. It's going to be Nat King Cole, just nuts roasting on an open fire. And it's going to be... We had no idea we was going to be included with the likes of Iconic, you know, um, 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 Perry Cuomo. It's in the canon, yeah. That's crazy. I mean... That's crazy. It is crazy. It's inconceivable. <laughs> when I was telling people we're doing a holiday show right. and I'm going to talk to DM, they're like, oh, yeah, Christmas and Hollis. No, they I know yeah. exactly. And you know what's crazy? It's, I cannot go to the mall after Thanksgiving because <laughs> every two steps is somebody yelling the verses from the record at me all the way up until New Year's. That's hysterical. I don't even go That's shopping hysterical. now. I shop online because when Thanksgiving get into holiday season, I'm driving on the highway and truckers are rolling down the window, <laughs> window yelling, it's Christmas time and all it's... Can't go nowhere. Run so loud and proud you hear it. It's Christmas time and we got this spirit. Rock Hall of Famer Daryl DMC McDaniels, co-founder of legendary hip-hop outfit Run DMC. Cunningly. And folks, coming up later, we'll hear a Yuletide playlist from a newly minted rap star, Macklemore. Spoiler alert, Christmas in Hollis is not on the list. Mm, he might get coal in his stocking. Does not respect his elders. Say Merry Christmas and Happy New Year! And now, time to eavesdrop. Comic Maz Jobrani has performed on stages from the Middle East to the Middle West. His debut book is called I'm Not a Terrorist, But I've Played One on TV. Today we overhear him tell a tale of two holidays. Hi, this is comedian Maz Jobrani. By the way, if you have kids who have written letters to Santa Claus and are expecting gifts from Santa Claus, now is the time to send them to watch Frozen for five minutes. I was born in Iran, and in Iran, our holiday actually happened at the Persian New Year, which happens always in March, and it's called Noruz. And Noruz is kind of like, if you can imagine, all of the American holidays squeezed into two weeks. Parents give gifts, except they wouldn't give you the gifts that you get on Christmas in America. They wouldn't give you toys. They used to give you, like, a real, the Persian currency, and they would sign it. So you would get, like, a dollar signed and you would think that's it and they say yeah it's gonna bring you good luck so we would celebrate that way we would get together with the family we'd paint eggs so it was like easter we'd go door to door asking for treats so it was like halloween we would light uh, fireworks so it was like fourth of july all that happens within a two-week period and it still happens so that was my first experience with holidays until the school i went to was an international school and in first grade, we did half-day Persian classes, and the other half, we did English classes. And so when we started doing English classes, we also had Santa visit. 
And it was amazing because this guy shows up with a white beard and this red suit, and he's got a bag, and in the bag he had toys. So finally, I was getting toys as a gift. And I was like, this is a cool holiday. And then our holiday break comes up. And we don't know the revolution is going to happen, but my father is on business in New York. He sends for my mother to send my sister and I to go visit him in New York. And I always say, we packed for two weeks, and we end up staying for 35 years. Because no one knew the revolution was going to get worse and worse. So at some point... I tell my mom, let's go see Santa. And at that point, my mother's exhausted. She's come from Iran all the way to America, and she just laid it out and said, listen, this is a tough time in my life. I'm not about to put on a whole show with this red-suited fat guy with a white beard and pretend like there's a Santa Claus. There is no Santa Claus. There's only me and your father, and uh, we're both very tired. So find the toy, play with it, and ho, ho, ho. And life went on until we settled down in Northern California, Marin County, second grade. I uh, meet some kids. One of them is named Peter and his younger brother, Michael. Their parents are German. And I go over to Peter's house right around the Christmas uh, holidays. And I show up and these guys are writing a letter. And I go, who are you writing to? And they said, we're writing to Santa. And I was like, oh. Well, he doesn't exist. And then this argument starts, and then no one can settle it because his parents are saying one thing, my parents are saying another thing. To them, they were like, ah, oh, these crazy Americans with their fantasies. Tell Peter that his country was involved in the 1953 coup of Mohammad Mossadegh in Iran. That's reality. So flash forward three decades, and I've got my own kids, a seven-year-old boy and a four-year-old girl. And you would think I would follow in the footsteps of my immigrant parents and let them know early on that Santa does not exist. But no, I go the opposite way. I have Santa, Easter bunnies, uh, tooth fairies, you name it. These things exist in our household. My kids live in a complete fantasy land. Comedian Maz Jabrani. His debut book is called I'm Not a Terrorist, But I Play One on TV. All right, folks, stick around because our holiday special is about to get specialer. Actor Beverly D'Angelo talks about one of the most iconic scenes in holiday movie history, and star chef Jamie Oliver explains why he owes his career to a holiday special when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And I'm Rico Galliano. Here's actor and comedian T.J. Miller, one of the stars of TV's Silicon Valley, to share some holiday memories. The strangest, strangest gift I ever got were they were back-to-back gifts, back-to-back Christmases. The first one was a casino gambling set to play roulette and craps and blackjack and all this stuff. But it was so weird that my parents were like, yeah, you like gambling. Here, try and get better at it. And then the next year, I was like, what could possibly top this in terms of giving a kid a vice, you know? And they gave me a unicycle. And I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, a unicycle. You kind of like juggling and stuff. And I said, okay. And then the next year, she got me juggling knives and juggling torches. Just basically saying, like, you're a full-on clown. Just get into it. Go for it. 
And uh, I went out into the backyard and I started juggling the fire torches. And she said, those are wussy flames. Put more, you know, lighter fluid on it. Get big flames. And I put a lot of uh, lighter fluid on it. And then I severely burned my hand. And I still have a scar to this day. Silicon Valley's T.J. Miller. Yes. Moral of the story, if you give your kids dangerous gifts, they'll grow up to be award-winning actors. That's right. And people, if you couldn't tell, we're in the middle of our holiday special special. Coming up, funny man Bruce Valanche attempts to defend the Star Wars holiday special he helped create. And rap stars Macklemore and Ryan Lewis give you a special song to play when everyone bails on your holiday soiree. But first... This is a dinner party. Let's get to the food. All right. And for that, we invited over Jamie Oliver. The boyish chef became an international star with a series of hit British cooking shows. He's got restaurants all over the world and has long led the campaign to make school lunches more healthy. Mm. His book, Everyday Superfood, it's not a comic book. It's full of quick, (laughs) nutritious recipes. So Rico spoke to him about planning a healthy holiday menu. First, though, I asked him about the day back in 1997 when a BBC crew filming a Christmas special accidentally made him a star. I was basically uh, at work. They were doing a Christmas TV show with my bosses. The River Cafe is probably one of the most famous restaurants in London. And uh, one Saturday night I had off, but someone called in sick and they asked me to come in and cover it. And that's when there was a crew kind of stalking me. Uh, And I I was doing slow-cooked shoulders of pork, beautiful handmade raviolis and tagliolinis with wild mushrooms. And they just kept asking me, what are you doing? How are you doing it? What is it? Of course, I loved it. And then like a couple of months later, went out at Christmas I ended up laced throughout the show, and then um, the rest was kind of history. Loads of phone calls. The BBC was kind of caught in me. I was only a young boy, and I didn't even know that I'd been on the show. You didn't see the episode? I was working the night it went out. And then the next day when I came into work, obviously everyone kind of knew about it, and the general manager was kind of um, internally phoning me up, pretending to be the BBC. (laughs) But then halfway through service, the real BBC phoned up, but I thought it was him again. (laughs) So the real BBC phoned up and I literally threw the most incredible, inappropriate abuse because I thought it was my colleague. Uh, And this poor BBC researcher was going, but, 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 but um, no, he said the word pilot and commission. And I realized that I'd made a massive error. So not long after being discovered, you, you did. You had your first of many BBC cooking shows called The Naked Chef. Yeah. And it was all about stripping restaurant food down to its bare essentials. Indeed. And if you don't mind, I'd like to play a clip from the Christmas special Naked Chef ran in, I believe, the year 2000. Wow. You are demonstrating how to prepare a warm salad that probably would not appear in your new book. First, you tear bread into strips, mm-hmm. and then you add this secret ingredient. Got some streaky bacon, dry-cured smoked bacon... It's good stuff. And you just want to lay the bacon so it's on the top. And that way, the fat sort of drips out onto the bread. And it's going to be nice and crispy and smoky. You're just piling on bacon. Yeah. And now, 15 years later, you're leading the charge for healthy eating. You're putting out a book of healthy recipes. What changed things for you? Uh, Well, listen, I still love bacon. And um, I'd, I'd always been about fresh cooking. But I think as you build a kind of meaningful relationship with the public, Your job really at that point is to really absorb their worries and the things they panic about and then broadcast solutions. You know, is it cost and money and value or time and speed or comfort? Yeah, and health has definitely become a worry. Yeah. And um, for me, hitting 40 this year, 17 years on from, you know, the recording you played, you realise you want to make the most of the second part of your life and and, and be optimal. Well, let's turn to the holidays and maybe apply some of the healthy recipes in this book to holiday parties. 
Can you maybe give us a fish dish? Because I always cook for the Feast of Seven Fishes, the kind of traditional Italian Christmas Eve feast. What recipe from the book could I deploy there and maybe people wouldn't even realize it was good for them? Well, I mean, you know, everything from like sizzling Moroccan shrimps with beautiful fluffy couscous and, and a whole rainbow salsa, you know, beautiful little jewels of pomegranate yogurt, you know, chili in there. Delicious. Really, I mean, good finger food, a little spice there as well, so it's good with the drinks. All right, I'll take it. How about turkey? Let's turn to turkey, the centerpiece of many a holiday meal. Mm-hmm. I am of the opinion that you cannot make it work without adding, you know, brining it in a ton of salt and adding a, a bunch of butter under the skin. Can you mm-hmm. do a turkey healthfully that is still actually good? Well, look, um, without sounding awfully condescending, um, um, <laughs> go right ahead. Largely in America, because you've mastered mass farming, um, oh, yeah. you know, you, you have very lean, fast growing turkeys. So if you go back to your ancestors, to the bronze turkey, their intramuscular fat is way more. And they're older birds, and they've grown in the right speed organically. That way, they not only cook a third quicker, but you don't need to brine them because they're fully juicy, because they're marbled with beautiful natural fats. And actually, you can find, you can find these farmers that do really badass turkeys that are just so good <laughs> okay so that it's not so much a preparation it's just heirloom turkeys as they call them yeah man like the original the way they should be all right finally what's the holiday dish that you cannot make tastily and healthily like is there one dish that even you would make with a quart of lard yes the ultimate the ultimate cheese toasty i think i have one of the best in the world recipes <laughs> wow. and um i can give you the key right now if you want it oh uh, no no or, don't don't. Yes, give us the key. Well, look, it's 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 it's. I call it um, it's it's a cheese toasty with a crown, right? Yeah. It's basically a, a grilled cheese that we would call that in America, right? Yeah. And what's really interesting about it is you can't get too healthy on the bread. It's got to be kind of filthy, fluffy white bread, <laughs> uh, and stuff it with a blend of red Leicester cheddars. You know, maybe sort of like I don't know something like a Conte from France, but whatever you like. But something melty. Get it in there, and then obviously you're frying it in a little olive oil, maybe a little knob of butter, and as you're turning it getting it crispy it's melting in the middle but but importantly you take the perfectly golden toasty out and you just finely grate the cheese into the pan just a little bit and like a doily just scattered and then you put the toast back in there Uh and it creates this kind of mental crispy bonkers outside and when you pick the toasty up like the cheese around it sags around it and it looks like a queen's crown right and then Mate, I love a little pile of ketchup, a little pile of mango chutney, and you just find a quiet space. Don't let anyone interrupt the moment. (laughs) Cut it in half, eat it, enjoy it, and feel your heart slow, you know, and then go and do a 10-mile run. Jamie Oliver, his book is called Everyday Superfood, and we have got his recipes for Moroccan shrimps and that life-threatening cheese toasty. Just head to dinnerpartydownload.org and try not to drool on the keyboard, please. All right. And now that our bellies are taken care of, let's attend to our funny bone. Let's. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation came out in 1989, and it's now considered a holiday classic. The movie follows the Griswold family as their patriarch Clark, played by Chevy Chase, tries to host the perfect Christmas, but is foiled by in-laws, mean bosses, and wild animals. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> With him through it all is his wife Ellen, played by Beverly D'Angelo, star of films like Coal Miner's Daughter and American History X. Mm. When we spoke, I first asked if she thought Christmas Vacation would be a hit. 
I didn't want to even do the first vacation. I just like come off coal miner's daughter. I was like on a little hot streak, and you know, like rule of thumb is don't work with animals or kids. I was twenty nine. <laughs> uh, Michael Anthony Hall was fifteen. I was trying to do the math on that, <laughs> but in retrospect, it was kind of great because everybody thought, "Oh God, that's the world's hottest mom," because I was a kid. <laughs> I mean, you, you know what I mean. So it made me look great. Um, but I did it. You know, it's National Lampoon. It's going to start Chevy. He's got a bunch of fans, you know, from Saturday Night Live, and uh, it's a satire. And I don't think I'm alone in this. Nobody approached any of these movies as, and now let's make a classic (laughs) that will stand the test of time. Well, part of his staying power, I think, you know, you were calling it a satire, is that this is a satire of family expectations around the holidays, which everyone struggles with. And right. you know, I, th- I think many people find the holidays oppressive because they feel like they have to match an ideal. And there's something, you know, intrinsically wrapped up in the Griswold universe with American mythology. Mm-hmm. We have a myth going that if you work hard enough, you will succeed. Yeah. And when you look at the Griswold family, what resonates is that, you know, that's not always true. <laughs> you know, there you see Chevy Chase's character, Clark Griswold, really coming to terms with that reality in probably one of the most iconic scenes in the holiday movie genre. Can you set that up for us? Well, okay. Here's how it went. Chevy, as Clark Griswold, is so excited to share what he's going to do with this Christmas bonus that's just been delivered to him that when he finds it's not what he hoped for, he then launches into a tirade that, to me, is a standalone in the cinematic history of losing it. If any of you are looking for any last-minute gift ideas for me, I have one. I'd like Frank Shirley, my boss, right here tonight. I want him brought from his happy holiday slumber over there on Melody Lane with all the other rich people. And I want him brought right here with a big ribbon on his head. And I want to look him straight in the eye and I want to tell him what a cheap, lying, no-good, rotten, four-flushing, low-life, snake-licking, dirt-eating, inbred, overstuffed, ignorant, blood-sucking, dog-kissing, brainless, f***less, hopeless, heartless, fat, bug-eyed, stiff-legged, You see what I mean? Such a classic scene. Do you, by any chance, remember the day you shot that scene? Well, you know, when you run a scene... You have to block it. You know, you are assigned places to stand for camera placement and all that kind of stuff. And for this particular scene, it was blocked in a way that would allow each of us to have around our necks a piece of rope that was attached to a big cue card. (laughs) And the ramp was divided into sections so that he could go all the way through from the beginning to end without forgetting his lines or flubbing his lines. They were all right there. So we ha- we didn't have the lines in order exactly. And if you watch it, you can see him. His eyes go from character to character <laughs> as he's going on in the speech because we've got the We've got the lines there. You know, you hear those stories about how Marlon Brando would wear like an earpiece or yeah. or he'd have like his lines stuck on the ceiling or in the uh, a bowling ball or something like that. And so, you know, I want to make it clear that the fact that we were wearing cue cards was not about any actor's incompetence. It had to do with our knowledge that the way to have Chevy sail was to have it there at his fingertips in case he needed it. Um, looking back at that movie now, I'm sure you see it once in a while. Does anything else stand out for you? There was a brilliant costume designer named Michael Kaplan. Okay. And Michael had really established himself with Flashdance when he had <laughs> like created, 
you know, trends with the cutoff sweatshirts and stuff. So he was the costume designer. And he said, listen, let's put Ellen in like Angora sweaters and capri pants and kitty cat pumps. And, you know, let's really, you know, let's hot it up, right? And whereas that probably would have been a great look for me that year. I said, no, nope, <laughs> yeah. that's not Ellen. My one rule for costumes was that I didn't want to wear anything that was locked in a time. I was thinking more of my mother. She wasn't in the world of fashion or trends. She was at home, you know? It was just how I saw the character. Because especially me, I mean, I had a wild life. I was I was married to a duke at the time. I was living in Italy. I was insane. To put myself in the position of a mother, honestly, it was an acting turn for real. But your outfit wasn't all that modest, Beverly. I was just rewatching this and, you know, there's kind of this big keyhole in your blouse right around your decollage. Well, I mean, come on, I got I had the great boobs. Wow. Beverly D'Angelo. <laughs> and Rico, another fun fact. Uh, Beverly earned her Screen Actors Guild membership after appearing in her very first movie, Annie Hall. Wow. Yeah. So in a way, Woody Allen is responsible for Christmas Vacation. <laughs> is that what we're saying? I, I wouldn't tell him that if I were you. I won't. Although they have a lot, you know, they're very similar. They're both cerebral. Well, yeah, you can see the influence. Uh, all right, folks, this is a holiday special. We need more music. So here with that are Macklemore and Ryan Lewis. Yes, they won a Best Rap Album Grammy for their debut album, The Heist. And their follow-up, called This Unruly Mess I've Made, debuted at number one on the hip-hop charts. Here they are to DJ a Yuletide party. How's it going? This is Macklemore and Ryan Lewis and I. We are here today talking about the music that we would play if we were to host a dinner party. Dinner party. Close friends family, relatives, loved ones. They all come over to your house for dinner. The Martinelli's is flowing, the red wine is plentiful, the eggnog is hot and cold too, depending on how you like it. The big question is, what are you gonna play? What are you gonna spin? How are they going to respond? The first song I'm picking is The Girl from Ipanema, Stan Getz and Gilberto. Now, you pick a song like this, and you really want to see how people react. And it can get awkward with this song. It's a rumba, it's a slow jazz tune, but you want to just set the mood off right. This is the perfect song. This is Ryan Lewis. Now let's say that nobody comes to your dinner party. What do you play then? I would go to Sufjan Stevens' Christmas Collection, and on that is a song called Sister Winter, which is just this brutal intersection of the holiday spirit and the realities of a cold, lonely winter. Oh, my friends, I've begun to worry right Where I should be grateful, I should be satisfied which is not your holiday joy, everything's all good, you're, you know, you're constantly walking around Christmas shopping and always surrounded by these fun, happy holiday songs. No, not now. Nobody came. Nobody showed up. You've cooked an entire meal for nobody to eat. You put on Sister Winter, your dolo, at the dinner table. Return to Sister Winter, but my heart is as cold as all right, 
So, we've covered the grounds. People have warmed up. Your uncle, Larry, hitting on your girlfriend. Your grandfather's asleep. Actually, your grandfather's dead. He's not even at your party. And you want to wake the people up. What do you put on? That's right. The go-to. Magic Dance by David Bowie from the Labyrinth soundtrack. You remind me it's a babe. Babe with the power. Power of voodoo. Voodoo. You do. Do what? Remind me of the babe. I saw my baby. Magic Dance is one of the weirdest songs ever made by anyone that's ever made music. You see who knows this song. You judge them off of that. If they don't know it and they've never seen The Labyrinth, Probably not going to invite him next year. You put it on, you get a soul train line going, you see who can really shake it by the Christmas tree. Now let's say the only album you have at the dinner party is ours. Let me tell you what you don't do. Don't play Jimmy Iovine. Thought I'd be shiny and beautiful. Thought I'd be alive and like musical. But it feels like someone died. It's got the vibe of a funeral. Don't do it. People don't know how to dance to it. It's going to make it awkward. I'd probably hit him with cowboy boots. Slow, deep bass in case you're already shaking your And also banjos. And what is a better addition to a playlist than a banjo? With the 808s. Holiday Party soundtrack from Macklemore and Ryan Lewis, and rest in peace, David Bowie. Seconded. All right, we're going to take a break, but when we return, acclaimed artist and musician Lori Anderson brings us Yuletide cheer in the form of a rat terrier when mm. the Dinner Party Download holiday special continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your party conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and this is our holiday special, so the culture, food, and humor this hour will have a decidedly festive bent. Coming up, one of the creators of the infamous Star Wars holiday special attempts to explain what went wrong there. But first, it's time for a lesson in holiday etiquette. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and popping down our chimney to answer them this time around is Fran Leibowitz. Oh, yes. She's got ash on her glasses. Her sardonic wit first cropped up in Andy Warhol's Interview Magazine. Then she published the acclaimed essay collection Social Studies and Metropolitan Life, mm. in which she wrote about the joys of sleeping and smoking, the terrors of algebra, and the horror of annoying children. Of course. Those books are compiled in a collection called The Fran Leibowitz Reader, out now on audiobook. Martin Scorsese himself made her the subject of his documentary, Public Speaking. And Fran, welcome back. Thank you. When we thought holidays, 
we thought immediately that we need yep. you here. Fran. Who, who would not? You know? <laughs> to contribute your holiday cheer. Uh, we read, actually, that for Christmas many years ago, you were given a drum set. You had this kind of dream to be a drummer. Is that dream still there? No. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Keith Richards gave me this drum kit. Are you serious? What? Um, yes. Wow. And lessons, drum lessons from Steve Jordan. Um, wow. There, but there's certain things Americans don't believe this, but here's what you can't teach: talent. You do not have the talent for drums. Well, I'm not that bad, okay. you know. But it's it's harder than it looks, and it's very physical. And mm. I'm extremely lazy. Mm. It's an exhausting experience. Yeah. Do you know why Keith thought it was a good idea for you to have a drum? Kit? Well, because I'm certain I'd mentioned in that I would like to be a drummer. Mm. I probably okay. said, you know, that Charlie Watts. Why don't you get rid of him? <laughs> <laughs> I'm available. You're like, look, I'll smoke with you on the bus. You won't have that fight anymore. I don't think he has a fight, and I don't think he goes on a bus. That's true. Well past the bus days, I would say. <laughs> the Stones, um, crazy. Well, we were talking about you know, the drums as a Christmas gift, but weren't you raised Jewish? Well, when I was a child, uh, it was before, I don't know what the word is, it was before you had to appease every religion other than Christianity. Okay. You know, it was basically a Christian country, that was it. I lived mm-hmm. in a town where there were um, relatively few Jews. The entire town celebrated Christmas, which I adored. I loved Christmas, by the way. Oh, wow. And because the rest, you know, in the 50s when I was a child, the world was kind of black and white, but Christmas was colorful. Mm. And Mm. it was my first, I believe, my first encounter with what would basically be my frame of mind, which is, there's Christmas, but we don't have it. Oh, so it was kind of a downer. It was like this wonderful yes. Technicolor dream is, is not, uh. I, I can't have that. I begged for a Christmas tree, but we did not have one. Mm. And I don't want to give you the idea that we were particularly, we were not observant, we were not kosher or anything yeah. like that. We were just um, self-depriving Jews. We couldn't have a Christmas tree. That was it. And Hanukkah wow. was a kind of, you know, I mean, it was little compared to Christmas. Yeah. yeah. I mean. Did you get dreidels, stuff like yes, that? Yes, but you know. That wasn't Christmas. Yeah, it's not a drum kit. No. Yeah. And it's not a Christmas tree, which I, I became so good at decorating Christmas trees because I was like a kind of itinerant Christmas tree decorator. I would go from house to house <laughs> where people did have Christmas trees. Oh, that's adorable. You were like an elf. I was just, I was extremely adorable, as you can imagine. Aww. <laughs> All right. Well, it's exactly that uh, elven, bright-eyed attitude that we're hoping you'll bring to our listeners' etiquette questions. You ready for these? I am more than ready. All right. <laughs> You've been ready your whole life. Here's something from Tori in Topeka, Kansas. Tori writes, what, if anything, can be said to a person wearing a vastly over-decorated holiday sweater? You, a very well-dressed woman. You know, people ask these kind of questions. I don't mean just of me, but in general, I say, you don't have to comment on every single thing. Mm-hmm. You could simply say nothing. Mm-hmm. You don't, I, But I've noticed in the Midwest, they're kind of excessively friendly. Mm-hmm. So Tori probably feels you're supposed to compliment everyone. And so probably the question is, do I have to lie? Um, yes. You don't have to lie, or you may, because it doesn't matter. It's not even a white lie to say you like someone's sweater. Mm. It's oh, a really? red and white lie because right. of Christmas But holidays. I mean, truthfully, what I see in New York is we're always hearing there's no water, there's no this, there's no oil. What there seems to be a huge famine, there's no mirrors. <laughs> you know, there seems to be a gigantic mirror famine <laughs> because leg. we're in a mirror any, drought. Anytime you walk out your door, you think, what? Yeah. What were you thinking? You chose this. There must have been one other thing to choose that was better than this. So maybe Tori can give as a holiday gift to the person with the overdecorated holiday sweater a lovely mirror. That's, that's a, a clever idea. An excellent that's present, a good, yes. That's a good suggestion, Rico. Okay, that's a polite thing to do. All right, now we have an audio question. This was left on our hotline by one of your biggest fans, friend. Let's hear it. Hi, this is Greg Proops calling from West Hollywood, and I have a question for Ms. Leibowitz. At what point during a holiday function is it okay to tell a relative that you hate them? 
Thank you. <laughs> that would be Greg Proops, star of the improv show Whose Line Is It Anyway? and his own podcast, The Smartest Man in the World. He actually sang your praises on this show a few months ago, friends. So. Oh, well, thank you. And I'm glad, thank you for repeating his name because I thought you said Greg Proust. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is a radio. wonderful name for someone in radio. That's right. Um, what I really believe is don't go to these things. You know, There's an incredible celebration of family lately. Mm. The more broken families become, the more scattered they become, the more people feel this nostalgia for family they may never have had. (laughs) If they're not supporting you, you don't have to go. But 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 telling them you hate them is probably not the best thing. So that's the gift you're giving them by not telling them you hate them. It's like suing someone. You'll make it never end. Well, we've noticed on our show where often we interview authors, et cetera, there's been a big boom in memoirs in the past Mm. few years. No, no, in the past like 20 years. past 20 years. So maybe going to your hospital holiday thing. I think people want, want these experiences so they have something to write about. They go back for more fodder, right? They <laughs> really? go back to have to play out these psychodramas with their parents. Uh, truthfully, the average observant person has enough material by the age of eight for the rest of their life. <laughs> you can stay home after that. And especially at a family gathering, nothing new is going to happen. That's yeah. true. You've, uh, you've <laughs> same... played out that Freudian nightmare <laughs> many a time. Right. Over and over again. You could go to someone else's family gathering. It would be almost the same, except you would not have the hate. All right, there you go. So so save on the hate. Go to someone else's family gathering. Greg Proops. Here's something from Patrick in Medina, Washington. Patrick asks, Ms. Leibowitz, when hosting a holiday party, how can I politely move my guest table conversations away from rambling, self-indulgent, narcissistic tales onto topics more appealing to the larger group? Um, this is Well, first of all, as you may or may not imagine... I don't host parties. I go to them. So, um, you know, yeah. I'm a guest. Mm-hmm. I'm not a host. You're a pro guest. So I'm wondering why you invite such a person to your house. I mean, if you are going to have a party, you should invite people who are riveting. If you don't know enough people who are riveting, don't have a party. But we, as we cited at the top of this this segment, you worked with Andy Warhol. You've worked with many, many famous people. There are some narcissists in that group, no matter how right, but riveting. If, I never had them to my house. <laughs> <laughs> Simple. Uh, Fran Leibowitz, thank you so much for joining us again and uh, for telling our audience how to behave this holiday season. Thank you. Like to take a semen pics, be a standing cinema, dress my friends up just for show, see them as they really are. Fran Leibowitz, her collection, The Fran Leibowitz Reader, is out now on audiobook. And folks, if you have a question, we promise to find someone as enthusiastic as Fran to answer it for you. <laughs> Send your query to us via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Andy Warhol, Silver Screen, can't tell them apart at So we've spoken today with the folks behind some of the most beloved holiday entertainments of the last few decades. Now let us turn to one of the most absolutely, totally hated. <laughs> That's right. We're speaking, of course, about the Star Wars holiday special. Oh, yes. It aired back in 1979, two years after the original Star Wars film became the biggest blockbuster of all time. Mm. And let's just say it did not fare as well as the movie. <laughs> one critic dubbed it the worst two hours of television ever. Yes. One of the show's writers was Bruce Valanche, who has had a storied career as a joke writer for performers from Bette Midler to Robin Williams and has six Emmys to his name. He also spent four years as a regular on the Hollywood Squares and appeared on Broadway in the musical Hairspray. So when I spoke to Bruce about the Star Wars special, I welcomed him like this. Welcome, and you are a hero for agreeing to revisit this dark stain on your resume. Thank you. Bowing humbly. You are, 
You're a champ. First of all, Lucasfilm kind of tries to distance itself from the fact that this special ever existed. Oh, yeah. It aired one time and never again. That's right. It's not available on home video. No, he's made it his goal to erase it. For the many who therefore have not seen this, tell us the plot, such as it is. <laughs> well... It's about the Wookiees, and Chewbacca, who, you know, is the very large Wookiee who looks kind of like a, a Yorkshire Terrier on steroids <laughs> and wears a bandolier, and he's uh, with Han Solo in the Millennium Falcon, and their goal is to get uh, Chewbacca home to his Wookiee planet in time for Life Day, yeah. which is their big annual day on the planet. And this was a day I think uh, George invented, and I think he thought it would become like Festivus for the rest of us. It presaged <laughs> Festivus for the rest of us. So the story is they have to get him back to the, the home planet. They are being pursued by Imperial stormtroopers. And while that's happening, on the Wookiee planet, we meet the Wookiee family, we meet Mrs. Chewbacca, Grandpa Chewie, who's a silver-haired daddy, and little Chewie Jr. Named Lumpy. Lumpy. Lumpy, that's right. I've forgotten. Yeah, well, you know, because <laughs> that was my nickname at certain points <laughs> in my life. So so naturally, I'd forget. I'd block it. Uh, yes. The first, I would say, 20 minutes of the show takes place in Chewbacca's family's house, where his kid hangs out with Chewbacca's mom and dad, as you mentioned. Here is a sample of the dialogue. <laughs> Okay, it's it's like 20 minutes of that, Bruce. I'm telling you, you... Unsubtitled Wookiee grunts. You taped me during an interlude in my cabana. <laughs> Whose idea was this? Uh, well, it was George's. Believe me, if they had said, you're going to do a show in which the lead characters are the Wookiees, and they speak no known language, and they you know all sound like people having orgasms... <laughs> Then I would have said, you're crazy. You could never do this show. It was only because it came from George Lucas that the thing happened. Do you, were you there on the set, by the way, for this? I absolutely was, yeah. Was there any discussion of how insane this was? Uh, it seemed like it, it was a challenge. It was almost like dance. Like if they could indicate what they were doing, just using their, their bodies. There was a school of thought that this was a, a great artistic endeavor. I mean, not that the show was an artistic endeavor. It was a variety special for television. But we thought we were doing something that nobody else would do. Well, and, that's and for sure. What, what could you do other than really load the thing up with subtitles? And then it would kind of look funny. I guess. In a, in a whole different way. <laughs> The, the other thing you loaded this up with was, as you mentioned, a lot of variety show elements, kind of sketches. Right. And they star just a who's who of American comedy from the late 70s and also the last people who should ever have been cast in a Star Wars spinoff. <laughs> yeah, B. Arthur, who later starred right. in Golden Girls, Art Carney, and uh, I want to roll a clip of the, the late comedy genius Harvey Korman playing a four-armed cooking show host, teaching Chewbacca's mom how to make bantha stew. Precision is very important in this recipe, and we do want to have a fine consistency, don't we? So, and on the count of one, stir, whip, stir, whip, 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 stir, stir, whip, stir, whip, 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 stir. Come on, faster all together now, cooking can be fun. Stir, whip, stir, whip, whip, stir, stir, whip, stir, whip, 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 stir, wah! Having fun, having fun. All right. 
So at this point, I'm going to quote the Onions AV Club who wrote about the show. This is a quote. I'm not convinced the special wasn't ultimately written and directed by a sentient bag of cocaine. (laughs) Is that what was going on with that scene? Well, there was a lot of that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was 1977. I think after 40 years, probably the the statute of limitations has run out as well as the cocaine. (laughs) Sure. But uh, yeah, there was a lot of that going on. But you know, that sketch was, he was doing Julia Child, Harvey Mm -hmm. Corman, who was very popular at the time. And And he was doing her as an alien who had many arms and so could multitask like nobody else and of course here's poor mrs chewbacca she's trying to figure out how to do it and you know she's a wookie and she doesn't have motor skills a whole lot uh and so it was kind of like uh making frankenstein do putting on the ritz exactly you know from from young frankenstein yeah you know for a sentient bag of cocaine there's a germ of a good idea yeah there you are (laughs) um one more scene this is when chewbacca's elderly wookie dad gets hooked up to a virtual reality machine, and he <laughs> yes. basically fantasizes about a hot, sexy woman played by the singer Diane Carroll. Here is a clip. I am in your mind as you create me. Oh, yes. I can feel my creation. <laughs> I'm getting your message. Are you getting mine? Oh, oh. We are excited, aren't we? Bruce Valange. Yes. It's a primetime holiday special. I know. Interspecies porn. How do you like that? The idea... There's, there's been an idea in science fiction uh, for a long time of a helmet device that you wear uh, oh, yeah. that transmits fantasies into your brain. And, uh, of course, you know the first thing you think of is, I want an erotic fantasy. Of course, everybody wants an erotic fantasy. So we decided kind of be a, a, a parody of the kind of softcore porn that was going on around then. But what is could, this you... doing in a holiday special, Bruce? I, well, you know, it's, it's to appeal to all types. <laughs> you wanted a broad appeal. Um... <laughs> The new Star Wars movie comes out in December. As someone who has officially contributed to the Star Wars universe, do you get to go to the premiere? I don't think so. I mean, uh, every time I see George, he, his expression is grim. <laughs> I mean, I once asked him about the show, about if he, and he just kind of cut me off, didn't want to talk about it. Like, it, to him, he's like, you know, Tevye in Fiddler on the Roof, the girl who goes off and marries the Gentile, doesn't exist anymore. You sound a little bit hurt by that, though. Are you, on some level, are you proud of this thing? No, I mean, no. I mean, I know it's one of the worst television shows of all time. And I've written, you know, listen, I wrote Wayne Newton at SeaWorld. So I I know whereof I speak. Bruce Valanche, the man you can thank and blame for the Star Wars holiday special. The undoubtedly better new Star Wars flick, Rogue One, opens next week. And folks, that concludes our holiday special full of specials. Ray. The elves in our workshop include producer Jackson Musker and associate digital producer Christina Lopez, Ben Tolliday engineered. And now before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from your holiday dinner parties. And this week it comes to us courtesy of musician and artist Lori Anderson. A while back, she told us about her film Heart of a Dog which, among other things, is about her relationship with her late rat terrier, Lola Bell, who turned out to be musically gifted. Here's Lori. Happy holidays and bark appetit. Lola Bell was a West Village dog in New York, and she just was super social and liked to see people and see and be seen kind of dog. And so when she went blind, she kind of got paralyzed. She got really upset. So a friend who's a dog trainer said, you know, I taught my, my dogs to play piano. And I said, you did? Teach our dog to play piano. So she did. She taught Lola Bell how to play. 
and Lillabelle played every day for two years, and music saved her life, you know. I think a lot of musicians would say that too, but she uh, made music and created her own world and made a Christmas record, which was pretty good. Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah, everyone. (laughs) 